0: Welcome to the Intelligence Briefing, What's the Buzz? Where leaders and hands-on experts in AI and automation share how they have turned hype into outcome. I'm your host, Andreas Welch, and if you would like to stay current on running AI in business, make sure to sign up for my newsletter at intelligence-briefing.com. Today we'll talk about putting AI into practice. And who better to talk about it than someone who helps organizations and leaders do just that? Reed Blackman. Hey Reed. how are you? Good man, how's it going? Doing all right. Thank you so much for joining. Hey, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and what you
1: do? Yeah, sure. I am the author of a book called Ethical Machines, published by Harvard Business Review on how to put AI ethics into practice. I'm the founder and CEO of Virtue, an AI ethical risk consultancy. I'm the chief ethics officer of the Government Blockchain Association. I've been on EY's AI advisory board, a senior advisor t- to the Deloitte AI Institute, sit on the uh, advisory boards of several startups, and that sort of thing.
0: <laughs> awesome. So It's definitely a perfect person to talk to. I'm so excited to have you on. Really looking forward to our conversation today.
1: Yeah. Perhaps one of the things that awesome. I used to be a philosophy professor. So ethics is my thing. Been my thing for 20 plus years.
0: Sounds great. As I am, to hear more about your perspective. So, if you are in the audience, if you're just uh, joining the stream, drop a comment in the chat and put there what do you think AI ethics entails. What does AI ethics mean to you? Let's jump straight straight to the question. Before, when I look at the way the debate has evolved, right? I, I think early on, are you know, climbing the hype cycle, twenty sixteen, seventeen. Though, a lot of talk about is AI putting us out of our jobs and gloomy gloomy type things. And I feel it, it's been succeeded a lot, by this focus on AI ethics, which in my view, not being immersed in, in the topic on a daily basis, but it seems that it's that next wave. So I'm wondering why is AI ethics now getting so much buzz? What are you seeing?
1: There's a couple issues. One is that there's just lots of instances, lots of cases in which companies are getting in trouble for realizing AI ethical risks. So, for instance, there's been various multinationals involved. Scandals a bit strong, but regulatory investigations. So, Goldman Sachs being investigated by regulators to determine whether or not the credit limit that it set using AI for the Apple card was discriminatory against women. Optum Healthcare. Under investigation for an AI that allegedly recommended to healthcare practitioners to pay more attention to white patients than to sick or black patients. Obviously, you've got risks related to self-driving cars, like an Uber killing a self-driving, a self-driving Uber killing a person. You've got issues with Facebook and everything that it does with its algorithms, its AI algorithms for serving up ads. For instance, homes to purchase to white people versus homes to rent to black people. So there's all sorts of reputational risks that get that have gotten increased attention over the past few years. I haven't even mentioned all the privacy violations. You combine that with the coming regulatory regulations from the EU AI Act, to name just one, and you get naturally lots of attention around AI ethical risk. You see, do
0: you feel that's a natural or almost a logical progression as we see technology be adopted more and more? that we do get into these cases, not sure if calling it an edge case would be the proper term, but basically where somebody is using something or maybe pushing the boundaries and doing that either a little too far or maybe not as consciously as they should. Where do you see that from your perspective?
1: AI is meant to have big impacts, right? It's meant to operate at scale. That's the whole point of it. If you used AI and it could only have a tiny little impact on a few people... No one would be interested in it. You wouldn't have a show and I wouldn't have a company around AI ethics, so, let alone a book. I operate at scale. It has massive impact. That's the whole point of it. And there are various kinds of impacts that are ethically, reputationally, and legally problematic. And so it makes sense that, and number one, given the, kind, given the scope of the impacts people are going to pay special attention to, are these impacts positive or negative? The second thing to say in this regard is that there are certain kinds of ethical risks that are likely to be realized by virtue of how the technology works. So it's by virtue of the fact that machine learning is a pattern recognizer that you get things like recognizing biased or discriminatory patterns. You get black box problems when the pattern is too complex for mere morals to understand. You get privacy violations by virtue of either the training data for the AI or the inferences that are made, the the inferred data points can self-constitute a violation of privacy. So given the scale... Of AI, And given the kinds of risks that are likely, given the nature of the beast that is machine learning, you're going to get lots of increased discussions about these things, especially in the wake of various scandals. Great summary. I
0: think you touched on a few things already, and one of them being data. And obviously, there's no secret here. If you want to do AI, if you want to do machine learning, you need data like you just said. And so I think also to your point, broadly speaking, that the data will contain different types of biases because it's based on decisions and events that somebody has taken in the real world. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, how should leaders start thinking about bias as it relates to AI? What's your recommendation? Yeah,
1: okay. So The first thing is that there is arguably justifiably lots of attention on bias in AI. And that's because it's really bad, and it happens at scale, and it's quite likely. One thing I want to highlight, though, is that an AI ethical risk program doesn't end with bias. It may emphasize that issue, but it certainly shouldn't end there because there's lots more ethical risks to address. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that companies need a systematic approach to bias identification and mitigation. And this needs to be woven throughout the AI lifecycle. So just generally, when you're doing AI ethical risk mitigation, when you're doing your ethical risk due diligence... You want to think about what those ethical risks are and how they might arise. Just in the concept phase, just when you're thinking about, is AI a good solution? And if so, what might that AI solution look like? You're going to want to think about the probability of success of developing a model that can solve the problem you want it to solve. But you'll also want to think about what are the risks involved? Not just of, say, technical failure, but, say, flouting regulations, ethical and reputational risks, cybersecurity risks, so on and so forth. And that needs to get woven into the lifecycle. So you do it at the concept phase if you want to use a word that I really hate, the ideation stage. <laughs> and then you need to do it during design, development, deployment, monitoring, maintenance. It's got to, because there's always room for something to happen in the system to introduce discriminatory outputs. Right? You might have done your biased due diligence, you've sufficiently debiased it, you put it into production, it starts gathering new data, new live data that's being created. And it turns out that data is a source of potential discriminatory impact. So you always have to check and check and check.
0: There's a lot of focus on what are the business results, the business outcomes, what are the KPIs, the hard yeah. metrics we want to drive and want to improve. Yeah. And I feel AI in many cases might still be this, this little appendix that, oh, yeah, we almost forgot about it. Is that how you perceive it
1: as well? There's certainly more talk than action. I don't think anyone would deny that. There are some companies who take it quite seriously, which is not to say that they've got it down perfectly. Of course, I don't think they would think that they do, but, and then there are some companies who are doing nothing. And then I think most companies are not doing much at all. I think they're waiting to see what happens with the EU AI Act, although they're not going to have to wait much longer because it looks like it's going to get passed probably in less than a month. And then the other thing is that companies that do something, they often start with something like an AI ethics statement. And then, frankly, they do a really bad job of writing these things, and then they don't know how to implement them. So they just say, oh, what do we do with these high-level principles? And then it just slams on the brakes. So I think most companies are stuck as to know what to do. Got it. Maybe let's take a quick look at the chat.
0: One question here is, given you were a philosophy professor, which of the classics would you recommend to be best able to understand the relationship between technology and society?
1: I think, tremendous amount of value to be had in reading philosophical classics. So I could go tell you to read Aristotle or Mill or Rousseau or Marx or whatever. I don't think that's going to be the quickest or best route to serious, robust ethical risk identification and mitigation in enterprise. If I were to suggest something like, here's how to get up and running relatively quickly in one's capacity as an ethicist, in particular, then I might suggest turning to the literature in medical ethics, it's what philosophers will call applied ethics, because it's about particular kinds of cases. So you'll see issues around the ethical permissibility of abortion or euthanasia. The ethics pertaining to healthcare systems generally, those are really important issues. They're controversial. And in studying those kinds of things, you'll learn lots of concepts that can be carried over. For instance, In healthcare, we have lots around informed consent, specifically having to do with one's ability to have control over one's body. But in the in the world of AI ethics, you might think about informed consent as it relates to data about you, for instance, what biometric data you're comfortable with people collecting and using. So I think rather than diving into the classics of ethics or moral philosophy which is great, and you, I recommend it generally, I don't think it's the most efficient, most effective way to really get up to speed on how do we think about the ethical risks that pertain to AI. And they certainly won't help you at all with creating the correct governance structures that are going to allow you, allow an organization to mitigate risk. So there are going to be people, as it were, on the first line of defense, maybe the second line of defense, who need to think about ethical risks for particular use cases, for particular models. But there also needs to be, though, that senior leadership that thinks about governance, policies, procedures, what are the appropriate tools? And I'm sorry, but Aristotle's not going to help you with that. Thanks for answering that. Let's take a look at the second one.
0: Sometimes the biases are inbuilt in data that is not explicitly known unless we find a pattern in the prediction. So when ML Ops, continuous learning, is adopted. How will we balance the bias into when the training of the model is automated? Maybe that goes back a little bit to the checks and balances that you just mentioned, but what are your perspectives on that?
1: A number of things to say. Number one, there's not one source of bias. It's not, people like to say it's the training data. It might be the training data. It might be something else. It might be the objective function that you set. For instance, one of my examples is, let's say you're distributing kidneys for transplant. And what you want to do is you've got this ethical goal of maximizing quantity of years saved, right? You want to get the most use out of this donated kitty that you can get. So all else equal, better to give it to the 18-year-old and to the 98-year-old because you'll get more use, more years saved out of that kitty. That seems like a, an ethically sound goal. And what you'll find out if that's what your objective function is and you make predictions about who's going to get the most use out of these things is that White people will get more use than black people because white people, at least in the United States, have better mortality rates than black people. And so it will start giving those kidneys to white people instead of black people. The training data is, if you like, perfectly accurate, right? Black people have worse mortality rates than white people. Now, there are various kinds of explanations having to do with historical discrimination that explain how our society got to be that way. But I don't think the training data is biased. I think it may reflect certain kinds of historical biases, among other things. But it might be that we need to change your objective function, not the data. Or it might be that you need to change your objective function or the constraints around the objective function. So maximize your saved, given the constraint that we want some kind of equal or equitable, whatever word you want to use, distribution across various protected subpopulations. Again, it might not be the objective function. It might be where you set your threshold. It might be how you weighted the input variables. So there's lots of sources of discriminatory outputs and lots of strategies and tactics for bias mitigation. Thanks, Wing. I think
0: that's very important to hear, right? Because feel the, the going assumption or notion is it's got to be the data, right? But to see and to understand that it's not just the data, the data is maybe one source, but there are so many other different. Factors that, that play into it, I think is very important right. also to keep it at the forefront in, uh, in, in our minds, how complex that they can actually be
1: yeah I you mean, look even if you grant for the sake of argument that there's some argument for a thing that it really always is the source of the bias really is the data. I think that's false, but let's just suppose it is for the sake of argument, it doesn't follow from that that the only plausible or effective Bias mitigation strategy involves tampering with the training data. It may involve changing your threshold, changing the weightings, etc. So there's lots of non-tinkering with data stuff that can be done in the service of bias mitigation.
0: Awesome. We started our conversation with, hey, I remember early on there was a lot of talk about AI is putting us out of work. And if I take a look at what's happening in business, in in many other areas as well, right? Where there are high stakes decisions, whether they're high stakes because of an impact to a person or because there's a financial impact. Um, People want to know how has that prediction come about? Why does that AI thing or system think it knows it better than I do? And so all of this talk about explainable AI that was there not too long ago, Mm -hmm. um, AI being a black box, people, again, don't really understand what's happening, why the prediction has been made. What are you seeing there and how does explainability play into the bigger topic of ethics?
1: Okay, so right, explainability is a problem because machine learning is a pattern recognizer in vast rows of data. It's looking, it's identifying, at least ideally identifying patterns that consist of the mathematical relations among thousands of data points. So, this is very difficult for mere mortals to comprehend, and so we get the black box problem. In low-risk situations, like if it's just making a prediction about whether or not this really is a picture of your dog that you uploaded, we might not really care about explainability. In certain kinds of high-risk, high-risk situations, like this person is likely to develop diabetes within the next two years, or develop cancer, or should receive this course of treatment, or should be denied a mortgage, or a loan, or an interview for a job, or admissions to college, et cetera. Et cetera. In those high sex situations, you may very well want explainability. Now, why would you want explainability? There's a variety of reasons. One is, and I think this is perhaps the most underappreciated one, is that from an ethical risk perspective, explainability has to do, among other things, with what transforms inputs to outputs. So what are the rules of the game? What are the rules of the model that transform inputs to outputs? And once you think about, okay, these are the rules of the game. That opens up the question. Are the rules of the game fair? Are they good? Are they reasonable? Are they equitable? If you can't explain what the rules of the game are, you can't engage in that kind of ethical assessment about whether or not this is a fair, reasonable, good rules to play by, or if instead you're asking your customers or clients to play by unfair rules. So explainability in that case is a necessary condition for engaging in the ethical risk assessment. That's one explainability. Another is that you want to be able to explain to someone why they were harmed in some. Way. To change that. you need to change x or y or Z and such a way so that you'll get approved for the mortgage next time. So sometimes explanations are needed so that you can help your customer or your client get better results the next time. Okay, there's more to say there, but let me answer, I want to answer the second part of your question, which is what are companies doing now around it? And the short answer yeah. is that if they're doing anything at all, they're using technical tools like Lime and SHAP, which give something like an explanation for why the model is giving the predictions that it's giving there's a deep interesting question about the extent to which those technical explanations are simplifications to the point of being distortions of what's going on in the model or whether they are accurate and use sufficiently useful explanations and then there's a second issue which in some ways is just as important anyway about who needs the explanation because those technical explanations are interpretable or understandable by data scientists, but not by your average consumer, citizen, regulator, etc. So a crucial part of the explainability discussion has to be, who do we need to give explanations to? Why do they need the explanation? So that means what would constitute a useful explanation or a good explanation for them? And in what language do we need to communicate? that is to say, how do we ensure that it's eligible? And I think especially
0: on the point of explainability and how to communicate it. I remember some of the early projects that I have been a part of, we started without explanation. We said, hey, we're 87% or 97% confident that this is the right information that we're showing to you. And the business user would come back to us and say, well, 97%? Is it good? Is it bad? How do I know it? So then the next step was to say, here are the top influencing factors or features that have gone into that prediction. Okay, but how important were they? And so I think we've seen it evolve also to a point where it's a scale. Maybe it's a scale of five stars. Is it very low? Is the prediction robust? Or is it something you maybe should check check twice as a person? So without giving absolutes that people don't have a reference point for.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things these tools do is they say, here are the features that played a particularly important role. But I've seen versions of this tool multiple times where it will articulate the major contributors to the output, but it won't say the way in which it contributed. So for instance, it might say this feature X and Y, the person got approved for a loan. And let's say features X and Y played big roles in that decision. But was X really for and Y was against it? Was Y for and X was against it? Were they both for it? For it? it's crucial if you're going to say that x played a role in the prediction to say what role that it played otherwise we just we don't know what it means
0: yes fair point maybe taking another quick look at the chat there's an interesting question here around the eu's ai act so what about the auditing of ai on a wider scale either by auditing companies or international certification authorities or governments what's your view on that when it comes to that aspect of the eu ai
1: there's a lot left. I like the general risk approach. That's also how I approach AI ethics from a risk perspective. How do we make sure that we don't ethically realize a bunch of ethical pitfalls, wronged people at scale? I think that's really important. Talking about those high risk, that high risk approach, I think is a good approach. I have to think a little bit more frankly about what the act would, con- would consider a, an acceptable risk or I forgot what they call it, but basically medium and low risk. They have a particular name for that escapes my mind at the moment. I want to know what those are exactly. Medium risk is still a decent amount of risk. And then the other thing is that we don't really know what the standards are. right? What really constitutes bias or discrimination? What constitutes a good explanation? So the EU AI Act spells out at a relatively high level, The kinds of things that you need to be compliant with, but the actual standards that compliance with which constitute compliance with the regulations is TBD. And so until we see what that looks like, we don't really have enough meat on the bones to know how effective compliance is going to be when there is compliance. Perfect.
0: Thanks for answering that question. You you already mentioned earlier that companies do have ethics statements, ethics principles, some do it better than others. How can companies actually put those ethics statements and guidelines in, into practice?
1: So first of all, the statements need to be better in the sense that they need to actually articulate what the guardrails are. Anyone can say they're for fairness. That's no big deal. I like to tell, say the KKK is there for fairness. But their conception of what fairness actually consists in is very different from what our conception of fairness consists in. So you have to do more than just say we're for fairness. You have to say we're for fairness. And that means we will always X or we will never Y or we value people's privacy. And so we will always X and we will never Y. So to give you a simple example, we value privacy. And so we will never sell customer data to a third party. Okay. Now I understand what one of the guardrail is around c- your commitment to privacy. So I think that number one, articulating what the action guardrails are in connection to each value is absolutely necessary. And it's immediately in some sense, action guiding because it's saying what's off the table. There are still gray area cases to deal with, which we can talk about if right. you want. The other thing that I think is absolutely crucial that I see companies stumble on again and again is they write their statement and then they want to rush to implementation. Okay, now we've got our principle. How do we implement? And you got to slow down. You have to slow down. If you want to implement quickly, don't rush to implementation. You need to do a gap in a feasibility analysis. You need to see, okay, where does our organization stand relative to the standards that we've just set in our statement? What, our, what are our data science teams look like? What does HR look like? What does marketing look like? What does the governance structure look like? What does the existing product lifecycle look like? And where is there a gap between how our organization actually operates now and where our statement says we want to be? And then related to that, you want to do a feasibility analysis. What do we need to do? How big of a lift is it going to be to move our people, process, and technologies up to the point where we're compliant with our ethical standards. People skip the step and they run right straight to implementation and then they run into tons of roadblocks because this department didn't know that thing was going on. This thing that you want to do is not compatible with this existing governance structure or enterprise risk management as it exists already or this or that policy and its disarray.
0: I think that, that makes it quite actionable, right? For those of you listening in the audience as well. I think that the call to action, not to take yeah. an action too quickly, is a very important one. Yeah. Awesome. And it's so counterintuitive to people I in business where we're so driven to show results, right? That to your point, that they can come at the right. expense of implementing something so we can say right. that we have. And so people will um, okay.
1: go worse to find a tool. We'll go rush to find a tool. Let's find a tool. We need a tool for bias identification. We need a tool for explainability. But you haven't specified any success metrics for tool selection. You haven't specified how that tool will get embedded into existing processes, and so the tool doesn't get used. So on. Fantastic.
0: I was wondering if you could summarize the top three ways for our
1: Yeah, sure. Let's see. Top three takeaways slow down a bit. I mean, so write an ethics statement where you can actually have guardrails. And two, do a gap analysis or a feasibility analysis. Third thing is, I think it makes sense to invest in, say, a person who can really understand the ethical risks, not by reading Aristotle, but for instance, by studying the literature of medical ethics, but having an ethicist around at least in the creation of the program, to spot the kinds of ethical risks that you want to avoid could be really powerful. Awesome. Thanks for sharing your expertise with us and to those in the audience for learning with us. Reed, it was a
0: pleasure having you. Thank you so much for joining.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for joining and learning with us. See you next time for another round of the intelligence briefing. What's the buzz?